Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about Glenn Fry of the Eagles with Cameron Crowe, the director of Almost Famous, former Rolling Stone contributor, and the writer of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But first, we're going to start with what we're listening to right now in the office. I'm here with Brittany Spanos, staff writer at RollingStone.com, and John Dolan, contributing editor for Rolling Stone and one of our senior critics. We're going to start with the Beyonce song. Brittany, there's so much has been said about this already, Beyonce's formation Obviously, she was seen by a few people at the Super Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, a, few. a few. Just a few weeks ago. Let's talk about the song itself. Mm-hmm. How does this fit into Beyonce's oof? Well, I think even within just the release of it, it's such a power move for someone being like, I'm playing the Super Bowl tomorrow. I'm going to release a new song today, and you're going to all know it in 24 hours, and you're all going to love that I'm. this is the only song I do. Is there anyone else who could have that reaction? I mean, she put out this song, yeah. and everything stopped. I think there were probably 10 to 20 think pieces from major media outlets, including right. us, <laughs> within a few hours. Does yeah. anybody have that effect? I can't think of anyone who could do that, especially before such a huge event like that. I mean, the Super Bowl is one of the most watched television events in America. And for a star to release a song and then by the next day, that's the only song they're going to perform in this 15 minute halftime performance and to have that power and people they're, are excited about it. Almost everyone was just talking about like how much they love this song. Yeah. Or like, Let's talk about five different ways how we love Beyonce. <laughs> right? and, it, and it's an awesome song. Yeah, it's a really powerful song. And for Beyonce to address Black Lives Matter in a trap infused pop song is really powerful to see someone as huge as she is to address this big political and racial tension that we're experiencing right now. Specifically in the video, for sure. Yeah, and also to bring back Hurricane Katrina, and she samples Messi Maya and Big Fridia, who are... Well, Messi Maya was tragically murdered in 2010, but they were huge in the bounce scene. I mean, Big Fridia is obviously still. And how does she bring them back in the... Well, she samples both of them in the music video, not in the official song, actually. But Messi Maya is the voice that you hear actually in the beginning of the video. And Messi Maya was this social media star at the time around Katrina. And yeah, you hear his voice in the beginning. And it's really cool to bring that back and to address that. And the video also has her, of course, on a New Orleans police cruiser that's surrounded by floods. Yeah. And there's tons of imagery in the video. Yeah, it's a really powerful image to have that and to have this drowning police car with the world's biggest pop star on top of it and addressing this tragedy from years ago and also in like in relation to all the tragedies we've been experiencing in such huge numbers over the past few years, especially. I'd say Beyonce is probably the most engaged video artist too. I mean, yeah. people forget too, she released every video for her last album mm-hmm. at the same time when she did her surprise album, uh, yeah. the same night. Maybe that's one thing that separates a lot of serious Beyonce fans from like kind of everyone <laughs> else, which is like the entire world, is that people pay attention to the videos on a different level. Yeah, she gives a lot of text to parse. Like she knows people are paying attention and she wants to give them something to actually read and to have. John, do you have anything to add about the Beyonce song? Just that it's incredible. I mean, I think everything Britney has said, that her ability to sort of bring the political out more, it's always been there, it's prickly in her feminism but now it's really coming out and the way she's able to transmogrify different things in culture, political culture, fashion culture, and put them all sort of through her songs and her videos and make it a total package. It really reminds you of the way that the greatest artists kind of throughout music history, Bob Dylan in 1965, Kurt Cobain in 1992, were able to take the world around them and make it their own and change it in these gestures. And using the Super Bowl to do that, it's just no one's, I mean, maybe Michael Jackson, but nothing's close, nothing's happened like this. It did feel like she like hijacked the Super Bowl. Louisiana, you mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. I'm a baby hand with baby hand. 
All right. Well, let's move on to a slightly smaller artist, Sunflower Bean. <laughs> slightly. Uh, John, can you tell us? Uh, the New York band. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, they're a great new band. Um, they're a trio. Uh, two buddies from high school who, you know, met going to high school in Long Island, met, fell in, fell in love with classic guitar rock, met a singer-bass player, Julia Cumming. They're a trio. They've only been really, they've been kind of making music for a couple years, but only really releasing music for about a year, and they just put out their debut album, which is called Human Ceremony, and it's a really fantastic combination of all kinds of guitar pop history. You've got the Velvet Underground in there. You've got 60s garage rock. You've got more modern garage rock. You've got the kind of jangly, college music of maybe R.E.M. and The Smiths, you've got the kind of druggy psychedelia of Spacemen 3 bands like that, but they were able to collapse these things into these extremely catchy, concise, fun little pop songs. I love this record, yeah. You hear a band finding themselves in a way that you don't often get to these days in the sense that they've only been around for a couple years, as you said, but they've played like something like 50 shows in New York. I mean, they really feel like a local New York band in a, in a good way. They've you know, gotten but good live on stage, which you feel yeah. often bands feel like they're kind of of the internet maybe these days or of sort of like the studio but they feel like they've grown quickly and learned to write quickly by playing, which is a fun thing to sort of experience. The jump between their first EP, which came out last year, and this thing is a lot, and it's only a few months. We're going to listen to a little bit of this song, Easier Said, which is classic indie rock. Like reminds me of like New Zealand indie rock band, like The Chills. Absolutely. Almost like kind of Johnny Marrish, kind of like pretty kind of pastoral guitar playing, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love the idea of just like listening to 20-somethings discussing the idea of maturing in a way that they're still trying to figure it out. And so lyrically, they're kind of going with the cliches. And it's really like, I mean, easier said than done is such a, right. you know, <laughs> right. but it's great. I think it yeah, works yeah. really well. They have one song where they just, the chorus was just, I was out, and then I wasn't. It's like, <laughs> that's it. It's awesome. It rocks. It's a great song. Only Sunflower Bean and Neil Young can pull <laughs> out a simple <laughs> chorus like that. <laughs> Don't try this at home. All right. Finally, we're going to talk about the new Chairlift album. John, that's another one of yours. Also uh, a Brooklyn band, not to be too local, but uh, a, a, a synth-pop duo, Caroline Palachik and David Wimberly. They met in college in Colorado and moved here, and this is their third record. They've also done um, production and writing, actually, one song for Beyonce. And this record is called Moth, and it's just fantastic. Their main kind of thing, it recalls this 80s synth-pop of, like, yes. They both write, they both make music, they collaborate together. She does all the singing. But this record, I felt they really did an amazing job of kind of combining different elements of other kinds of pop. There's 90s R&B, there's 80s kind of slick funk guitar splashes, there's stuff that could be a Max Martin dance production, dance pop production kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Chairlift, when they had that big single, Bruises, which was an iPod right. ad, and they kind of sounded like a real, like, just classic synth pop. Yeah. I tried to do handstands for you, but every time I felt for you, I'm permanently black and blue, permanently blue for you. Kind of putting the keyboards first, and, and a lot of people lumped them in with this kind of like John Hughes ish kind of yeah, 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 like yeah. 80, 80s revival. I think, we, and there's a little bit of that in the last record. I think with the new album, you kind of hear them expanding their palette. There's it, a lot more, yeah. Yeah, it's all done still, I think, a lot of it on keyboards, but it's not meant to sound like that necessarily. No, it's rich. I mean, that's the difference. You're right, it was kind of crystalline and kind of shimmering. This is just, there's a rich depth to it that, is, that comes out a little more, and it's, you can feel like you're going in between genres within a certain song, and that's a, a fun feeling. I love the entire album, and and crying in public is just so beautiful. So 
was reading this interview that they did with Rookie where they described this as their New York album and how, like, crying in public is such, like, a New York trope in, like, rom-coms and all of that. Right, right. right. <laughs> like, the <laughs> idea of, like, crying on the subway and it kind of reminded me of that How I Met Your Mother episode where they're like, that's one of the signs that you're a true New Yorker is, like, yeah. crying yeah. in public. <laughs> right, well, you just don't care. Yeah, right, right. and I'm, I'm a huge fan of just, like, very direct love songs and I think that they did so well with Romeo and crying in public, especially on those on the album, but... Like, why wouldn't you be direct with a love song, (laughs) right? It's like, for sure, totally. Yeah, me too, yeah. And we're back with our music news segment. I'm here with Rolling Stone news editor Jason Newman. Hello again. Good to have you. Today we're going to talk about a big change in the music industry, which actually does affect a lot of artists. For 58 years, a gold record, or even better, a platinum record, has been literally, not to be redundant, the gold standard, or the platinum standard in the music business. It hasn't changed significantly until now. Jason, what, what has happened? So basically, the Recording Industry Association of America is like the main governing body of the music industry. The RIAA, you've probably heard of them. And their main real function to the consumer is awarding these gold and platinum records that you always hear. This is the main thing they do, right? right? I mean, they're the people who who say you can have a gold plaque. I've never really heard what else they do, but I'm (laughs) sure they do other things. Well, for a while in the late 90s and early 2000s, they were chasing down copyright. Right, uh, they were yelling at, uh, or, at natural or, people. Yeah, yeah, um, which which got them a lot of fans. Right. right. But so for like 50, 60 years, basically what a platinum record or a gold record ran is how many records were, were shipped or were sold to record stores at a time when there actually was record stores. Right. So if you are a platinum artist, it means a million records got... Right. The demand was there for a million records to get shipped to record stores. Right. One could, you know, there were certainly times when the record stores would ship them back no one really talked about that right. part. But, that's but, a whole but other overall, story. that's but another overall, story. But that was, a fair, it was a huge a deal. It's generally fair comparison to say it's a huge deal to say you were platinum. If you were a platinum artist, which right. is a term we use a lot, just a at Rolling Stone. most likely bought your album, and you are a big fucking That's deal. a big deal. Right. Correct. Rarified air. Right. Still rarefied. Slightly rarefied now. So as of uh, February 1st, they made a huge, probably one of the biggest changes they've made in decades, where they're including now uh, streams. So they're including Spotify. They're including YouTube, if it's officially, not so much user-generated, but if it's officially licensed. Right. YouTube streams. Um, and they were not counting that. Right. Um, so we're not going to get too far into the weeds, but right. overall, it means that you don't have to sell a million copies anymore. Correct. Now you have to sell a combination. They have a very complex algorithm, which basically comes down to 1,500 audio and video streams is the same as 10 sales of a song, which is the same as one album. So if you're Justin Bieber, where, like, say you have a lot of fans who maybe aren't buying songs at the iTunes store or right. even less fans who are buying buying CDs at Walmart or wherever you can still get them. Right. You can now get a platinum record just from people watching your videos on YouTube or listening to your song on Spotify. Right. To give sort of some comparison, Psy, if Gangnam Style had come out now, Psy would have, we would have been saying in an alternate Rolling Stone universe, platinum selling artist, Psy. He would have sold about right. 1.7 million copies so, purely based on 2 billion YouTube views. All right. Well, so then what's the big deal? I mean, let's face it. I mean, that was an enormous song. Right. I mean, for a year, everybody was listening to Psy. What's the reason not to do this, So Jason there's, a, there's a couple of reasons. Uh the first one I'd point to is Anthony Tiffith, who is the head of Kendrick Lamar's label, uh, TDE, 
who tweeted, ah, right. we don't stand behind this R-I-A-A-B-S. And, and he actually put BS. We're not censoring him or anything. <laughs> um, old school rules apply. A million albums sold as platinum. Until we reach that number, save all the congrats. So... Because Kendrick Lamar's most recent record automatically went Autumn, platinum. Yeah, there were 17 albums that automatically went right. gold and platinum. All right, Kendrick's so why would he say that, though? Why? So I don't think it's a popular view in the music industry, but I think the idea is sort of this, especially in hip-hop, this strive towards authenticity. Right. Where I think he looks at it and some others look at it as sort of gaming the system. Basically, he was saying that we need to sell a million in order to call it platinum. I don't want any sort of shortcuts, or he looked at it as a shortcut. He's and, basically saying he's cheating because... He's not making, under the new rules, an artist who goes platinum is not making as much as they were under right. the old rules. The royalty rates are way less because the streaming royalty rates are way right. less. And the other argument, and Wired had a really great article last week about this whole thing, and just to quote them, if you don't subscribe to a streaming service, you have to pay to listen to an album even once. Can you imagine if you had to listen to an album 150 times for it to count as officially purchased? So the idea that they're taking 1,500 streams of a song equal to one album sale is a little odd in the sense that it doesn't really reflect the listening habits of people. You know, right. some people on Twitter have been saying, well, why isn't one stream equal to one song, one right. song purchase? So that's an argument that you could certainly make. Right. Well, it's not equal to a purchase because you're not spending money. Well, and that's right. where the whole argument comes in because, you know, how are you measuring consumer demand, right? Are you right. measuring it by how much are people going to pay money for it? Or are you measuring for it by how much people want to hear it? And sort of we're in this weird time of sort of where's the line between how much money do I want to give and how much do I just want to hear that album? Right. And I think so. That, that that's the fundamental shift. In the old days, it used to measure something like I still I I like this so much I'm going to spend money for give it, money and that's for what it. you were measuring with platinum. Right. I have a million people who who like me enough to buy my record now. You're only measuring people who happen to stumble on right. the song on Spotify so, or Apple exactly. Music. So now if you are Rihanna, and I know we talked about Rihanna last week, so I won't go too into detail. If you are Rihanna and you and Jay-Z cook up a deal with Samsung for them to buy a million albums and then give it away for free on title, and then automatically you are now platinum on the first day. You are now a platinum selling So this was a controversy Rihanna. because basically, right. uh, Rihanna was awarded a platinum record. The first she, day, right? She had only sold in traditional ways, uh, I don't know, something like a thousand copies. Right. Exactly. But she had cut a deal with Samsung, I think, to Correct. buy a million copies of her that record. That they were going to give out. I don't think that's going to be the, the major trend, but certainly with like big artists who are looking for sort of that marketing push, right? You know, if you are on the level of Rihanna, it's not insane to think that there's going to find new ways to sort of figure out, quote unquote, what platinum is. Right, know? right. So you're going to see more theoretically suspect platinum records, which is why Kendrick Lamar's manager right. spoke out. Because saying, he, want, he, wants, he doesn't want the goalposts to change. He doesn't want, you know, it's like the Barry Bonds uh, baseball, right? Like with the steroids. You know, he, he doesn't want the asterisks on it. Right, he wants no asterisk. Yeah, he wants the, the platinum record and that's it. You have to respect that. Yeah. Jason Newman. Thank you so much. Cool, thank you. If you want to learn more about this subject, go on rollingstone.com or check out the new issue of Rolling Stone. I'm back with senior writer Brian Hyatt, who was lucky enough to talk to Cameron Crowe, the director of Almost Famous and Jerry Maguire, and a former and sometime current Rolling Stone contributor to talk about Glenn Fry 
and his memories of Glenn Fry as a friend and as a profile subject. Yeah, long before Cameron Crowe was an acclaimed filmmaker, he was a very young Rolling Stone writer, one of the greatest. And that's, you know, of course, the experience memorialized in Almost Famous, and it was very real. Um, For people who have seen Almost Famous but might not know, a lot of it was autobiographical. Cameron Crowe was actually 16 or 17 years old and reporting cover stories for Rolling Stone, and a lot of it was based on his real life. Yes. As I said to Cameron, it's always fun to talk to someone who did your job better than you when they were a teenager. Oh, don't Um, take it personal. (laughs) But anyway, so we had a great conversation about the piece he wrote and the time he spent with the Eagles in the 70s. In a lot of ways, the Eagles were kind of his still water. A lot of Almost Famous was actually based on those specific experiences, and it's pretty fascinating to hear him talk about that. Yeah, and well, there's a lot of competition for the still water, but that definitely is, is one of the. I, mean, <laughs> right. I think the Almond Brothers, you hear a lot of things, but I think right. I think it was, he mixed a lot of things together, but for sure. And the crazy, yeah, yeah. Bit, yeah. And the crazy thing is that Glenn Fry was actually an inspiration for a character in a different movie altogether, as we talk about. So it's been a rough couple of months for rock and roll fans in general. I imagine yeah. that it's been, uh, you know, particularly rough in its way for, for you, is it, for, for you to see these guys that you interviewed and got to know and in some cases were friends with uh, go like this. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, it's, it is that generation of guys that, that both worked hard, partied hard, lived hard, oftentimes in the earlier stage of their life, and, uh, and and you just wonder, like, uh, does the body remember? And right about this age, mm. do you, do you have to battle the uh, demons of of, uh, of physical vitality? You know, it's just really hard to see some of these guys that just felt like uh, timeless individuals for everybody. You know, not just me, um, vanish from from the earth with little warning. You know, it's. It's amazing how much uh, England, for example, has really felt the effect of, of Bowie's loss. Yeah. Um, so just like a national grieving, you know? And, and here, too. Glenn was particularly tough for me because I, Glenn existed so much as, as a person and a person kind of, you know, in my life. And uh, you don't often cross that line, really, where uh, you feel like you've You've both profiled that person truthfully, but you've also come to know them as as an individual. Bowie, to me, always felt like somehow you never forgot it was Bowie. (laughs) It was was always like three feet away from the molecules that are David Bowie. And there he is. It's it's just slightly different. I mean, he he always glowed with a special kind of sense of... you know, once a generation kind of electricity. It's amazing. Right, for sure. Glenn, I mean, I, I was really struck uh, both in your original writing about the Eagles and, and in the new thing you wrote. He's yeah. a very distinct personality, but not necessarily a cliche rock and roll personality, a very different kind of personality. A really kind of a game-changing rock and roll personality because Glenn, Glenn kind of arrived with a big plan and a point of view that he was not going to to hit the roadblocks that, that, that the guys he'd read about and heard about that he'd listened to and loved in the past had. You know, right. Glenn was like, you know, to be paid for the work that I'm doing is not a sin. Okay, I'm not going <laughs> to let it change what I'm doing, but, I, you know, I'm not going to go to the whaling wall if I get paid properly. <laughs> so he, he really wanted to... Uh, to know that he wasn't going to end up on the trash heap, 
um, in any way that like this work that he was doing this this playful kind of team oriented uh, work that he was doing was going to be you know hopefully remembered for the songs not for any tragedy that cut their journey short and um, and in that way it was like a, a coach and a team saying you know we're going to go all the way. We're going to take our time. We're going to have a strong bench. He was just a guy that, like, put you on the team right. as soon as you met him. You had a nickname. <laughs> you know, you you had an invisible jersey that he put on you, and you were with him, you know? And he was uh, he, he was your wingman, and you were his wingman, and that was just the way he moved. When I was reading your piece, which I really enjoyed, you started describing, you know, some of the advice he gave you because you became, you know, kind of close. <laughs> and, and I started... And I'm thinking, you know, that sounds like uh, Mike Damone from Fast Times. And then next paragraph, <laughs> the next paragraph, you say you actually based. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating thing. I mean, no one could ever guess that <laughs> in the abstract. <laughs> no, and I really believe in giving credit too. Like, you know, I'm I'm one of those guys that always has a notebook and will write it down. And I probably wrote that down specifically, you know to be remembered if I ever did anything later that needed a character that was that kind of garrulous guy, you know, who, who like knew the ropes of relationships. So I was, I, you know, I would, I just remember like those guys were so facile and wonderful around women. Mm. And like, I was always younger than everyone because my mom skipped me all these grades. So like I was, <laughs> I was basically a the clown joke to all, all the girls that I wanted to, like, you know, dance with or anything, you know, date, oh, my God, how would I do this? And so sometimes I would just say to Glenn, like, you know, this, this girl Cheryl, you know, and he would ask, like, how's it going? You know, how's it going? Are you going to grow some sideburns? What are you, what, what are you, what's going on there? And you'd be like, well, I mean, I'm trying to impress this girl Cheryl. Cheryl, tell me about Cheryl. And you're like, well, she's she's really beautiful. I don't know if she, um, I don't, I don't think she's that aware of me, you know. But I, I can, I can be a guy that could be more memorable, I guess. Tell me what to do, you know. And he'd be like, hey, man, if they don't smell your qualifications, move on, you know. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that's the way to view life. Thank you, Glenn. In uh, 1975, you wrote your Eagles cover story. I believe you were you were 18 or 17. Uh, 17. I think. <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I had no one else to hang out with. The girls wanted to hang out. <laughs> it's always fun talking to someone who did their did your job better than you when they were a teenager. But <laughs> that's okay. <Come> on. <laughs> but, but uh, no, so so you were you know, and, and so you basically moved in with. With the with with the songwriting pair of the Eagles and got to watch them actually truly watch them writing songs, right? Yes, and absconded with all their legal yellow legal pad writing notes too, <laughs> which I've still got. Um, but yeah, their process of songwriting was meticulous and exhilarating because they would they would just. Uh, really, you know, go over each line and then they talk about, you know, what they were trying to accomplish. And in that time where I, I got to kind of live with them and get the the twenty four hour a day look at their lives, creative lives and stuff too. Um, 
you know, what what came to mind most was this view of, of Los Angeles that was just mm. glittering outside this big, you know, picture window that they had. And they would talk about how this was the million-dollar view. And they would laugh about the million-dollar view. And, um, you know, what does this song have to say about the million-dollar view? Like, look at what's happening out there. What is somewhere, there is this character, and she has a sugar daddy. And she is, boom, they're riding a lion eye. Mm. You can't like face-to-face over a table, both with guitars. Just seeing the dynamic between the two, you never forget it because it's it's how they describe Lennon and McCartney a little bit. Like, one adds the perfect kind of counterpoint line that makes the song. Like, mm. it's like so, so many of those kind of refrains and eagle songs that Glenn sings yeah. are, are just perfect examples of what he brings to the song. Like, you know, Don would have a, a lyric and a melody line and Glenn would add the you know spend my life running around and that would be Glenn and then hmm. Don would come top it and the two of them would just go back and forth and you know and I just kept hoping they wouldn't tell me to turn off the tape recorder <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's I can almost imagine being allowed to watch that but what I can't al- imagine is actually being allowed to record it <laughs> you know I tried hiding it for a while in the bag and then the, I could go home and listen to the tapes and it's like shit this is like muffled right so I'd start creeping out just a little mic microphone because you know this is sadly pre-mp3 hidden recording device days and so so i just like creep a little microphone out and you'd see them look at it and then like (laughs) let's kind of forget it right so there was one song that he that glenn wrote with Joni Mitchell that neither of them ever recorded that I have on one of these tapes and it's such a good song Holy it's called shit. When a bad boy when a when a bad boy meets a bad girl in the night mm. and it's just so great and it's got like classic eagles kind of harmonies and it's really the crossroads of Glenn Frey and Joni Mitchell and and when he did Jerry Maguire um you know I had this little dream where I would uh, I would I would get him to finally record this song. So like there was a break in one of the takes, and I just kind of sidled up to him and said, uh, "You yeah, know, really great. How you just thrashed Tom Cruise like he was your dog." He's like, "Thanks, man." And I go, "By the way, you know that song when a bad boy meets a bad girl in the night? Like, like, uh, do you remember that song?" And he looked at me like I had stolen a diary. I said, you know, you were writing that when when we were doing that article for Rolling Stone. You were writing that, and he goes, I, I don't even remember how that goes, and I don't even know who would record that. But I don't even remember how it goes, and I, I was just about to say, well, I actually do remember how it goes. <laughs> I have, but something interrupted us, and then a couple of days later, he came to me. And he said, you know, I have a song for you. I wrote a song for you that I think is perfect for this movie. And um, and I said, great, let's listen to it. And he had written a song called Show Me the Money. <laughs> so, um, I must I must dig out because it was really funny. He was he was like, no, nah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to mess around with this this song that was an outtake from Eagles Land, you know, however many years ago. I'm going to give you the new stuff. <laughs> Show me the money, you know. I'm gonna go. 
theme song. Um, <laughs> pretty, pretty on felt, the nose, yeah. <laughs> pretty on the nose. It felt a little. It felt a little like. Um, did you like that line in the movie? Well, we did too. And here's our theme. You know? <laughs> did, did you have an actual scene in Jerry Maguire that you wanted to lay that? Uh, if, if he had recorded that song, would you have actually put that in the in the soundtrack? The uh, not 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 show me the money, but the other song. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I would I would have moved everything possible mm. aside to just you know, even if it was like you know, blank frame. <laughs> so good. You just want it, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe someday, it's, um, uh, well, somebody can do it. Well, you know, hang, hang on to that tape. <laughs> um, yeah. At the end of your piece, you mentioned you you wanted to hire him to play a role on on Rhodey's your upcoming new show. I did. And, and so, what transpired in that conversation? Well, I wanted him to play the manager of this band because you know I just I I love what Glenn brings to his scenes when he's an actor because he, he's he's pretty much playing himself but there's a confidence when he's talking about uh, you know what the agenda is if he's the character and the character has an agenda and so I just thought wow he'd be so great to be this kind of wizened manager of this band not not in a caricatured way but in, in just a realistic way because I know Glenn knows the business and I just was told um, I mean when it got real serious I got that that we wanted to move forward on it, I was told that he just wasn't he wasn't um, healthy enough mm. for it at the moment. And um, but when I last saw him, we talked about acting, and I was just it's like I'm going to lure you back. And he was so excited, and he started pitching me this idea of uh, Kauai Five O, where he's like the the toughest detective in Kauai. <laughs> you could stay in Kauai, you could film Kauai Five O, and then on breaks he could be in the Eagles, and like you know, that's a great life, isn't it? Yeah. And that was our last conversation. And uh, actually, he came, we had one more after that because he came he came back um, after he had seen the movie. He he came to one of our screenings of Aloha, and he came back and. We had a conversation about the movie, and he was he was really supportive of. Uh, you know, he immediately said, "Like you know, it's it's hard to make a movie like that about characters and people. You just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. I'm with you." <laughs> and he just kind of cuffed me around the shoulder, and that that truly was the last time I saw Glenn. Mm. Sounds like genuinely sounds like a great guy. For real, a a genuine great guy. Yeah, a genuine great guy, and um, I think you you celebrate him by uh, by by not marginalizing the Eagles and knowing that it was a a tough, um, brilliantly executed journey of of a great American band. There's a there's a funny ironic story of Don Henley um, at a Brian Wilson show or Brian Wilson came to an Eagles show. I can't remember which how it goes, but mm-hmm. Don Henley gave, <laughs> gave Brian something to sign. And uh, mm-hmm. Brian's signature was to, to Don, thanks for all the great. And then he pauses and he crosses out great and writes good music. <laughs> Love Brian Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like that's the, wow, that's the most cruel 
these are two of the guys that define modern California in music. But you know, I, I would, uh, I would, I would, I wouldn't have crossed out great, and I don't think Brian would have either. I think uh, <laughs> I don't know what I couldn't imagine what would have caused him to do that. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> but I do want yeah. to know what Don Henley said at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, well, I will uh, let you get to your office so you can go on making your TV show. Um, but thanks so much for doing this. Thanks. It's a, it's, it is a pleasure. And, uh, you know, say hi to the guys. That was great. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. So take it easy. And we're here for our reader mail segment. Today we're going to answer reader mail about our Bruce Springsteen coverage. As Springsteen fans know, Bruce is on tour for his River Tour, where he's playing the entire River album from 1980. <laughs> It's been pretty epic. There have been some three-hour-long shows, as many people can expect from Bruce. And we're here with Andy Green, associate editor and one of the people who's written about Bruce probably the most at Rolling Stone. Andy covered the opening night at Pittsburgh of this tour and has written multiple other stories about this tour. Andy, let's jump right into it. Uh, Great, let's do it. This is from somebody with a username, Little Big Man. Here it goes. While I love the boss and go back to the original River Tour with his live shows, I can't help but notice that in every, this is all caps, story RS does on his tours, not once, ever, do they ever ask about the, quote, ticket issue, unquote, as in the absolute monopoly that Ticketmaster has and the way fans get screwed every time out by both them and their, quote, reseller puppets, unquote. If any artist could, should have something to say about this ripoff monopoly, it is someone who has for decades claimed to be an advocate for the average working American. Um, Andy Green, can you speak to this? Sure. I mean, I think this is a huge issue with fans of Springsteen and of all major acts that getting good tickets is almost impossible. And these bots on Ticketmaster take everything. But really almost yeah. impossible. So if you're like an average Springsteen fan, the experience of a lot of people is that it's hard to get good seats yeah, that, just going through Ticketmaster. The on sale happens at 10 a.m. And by 10 a.m. and 10 seconds, it's sold out. They right. You're on StubHub and they have 3,000 tickets by 10.05. Right. Right. It's extremely frustrating, but I think, but the problem is that there's not much Springsteen can do about it. I mean, Pearl Jam tried 20 years ago. Right. They really tried. They went to Congress. They played non-Ticketmaster venues, and it was a complete fiasco, and they gave up. Right. That they have these ironclad contracts that are with the venues. Right. And if you want to play big places, you have no choice but to deal with Ticketmaster. Right. And I'm sure it makes Springsteen crazy scalpers are getting all of his tickets, but... Does he release tickets to his fan club no he does not really do that he keeps prices lower than he could right which helps right. the scalpers in and it's a perverse way because they are they are below market value that's ironic so it's not like springsteen doesn't charge like as much as like say the rolling stones no and he could in, in some very big markets but it actually works against yeah them so way. the stones they charge so much that they meet the market value of their tickets so the scalpers they don't have much meat to get from the from the resale of them I'm sure Bruce would love to fix this somehow, but there's no way around it. So it, Bruce hasn't been too vocal on this subject. You said somebody else... Uh, yeah, that people on Twitter were reaching out to some members of the band, and guitarist Nils Lofgren said that the best thing to do is to reach out to your state a attorney general and complain about it. But even they, there's not a lot that can be done about this. The that's kind of tough, yeah, tough advice. It's tough reach, advice. Talk to your local, attorney general, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a real... It's a real bummer, but 
it's like fighting City Hall. You just can't do it. It's right. just Ticketmaster sucks. <laughs> right. There's work to be done. Yeah. Okay, we're going to answer a comment from Jason Voigt. Why does this magazine devote and waste so much time on Springsteen? Don't get me wrong. I like Bruce. I like a lot of his songs, and I've seen him live once. Great show. But why is it that every time Bruce is working on a project or releasing something, it gets headlines? Andy? Well, I can see for the non-fans why that would be frustrating, but he's one of the biggest rock stars in the world, and he usually does different things. Most of his peers are out there playing the same show for years on end. There's not much Aerosmith news out there. It just band plays same set for the millionth time. But Springsteen is always putting out new music. He's doing great shows. He plays stadiums. I mean, he's just an enormous rock star that puts so much passion into his work. I would say, like, for Springsteen... you may not everybody's a Springsteen fan, but mm-hmm. there are only so many people at his level who are as active as he is. Yeah, I mean, who who's still like are, is swinging are swinging for the fences and touring as much as he does. Every time he comes out with an album, you know it's not going to be uh, you know usually not, you know not a covers record or something kind of half baked. There's a level of ambition that Bruce still has, which is kind of hard to deny. Yeah, it's very rare, and he's almost 70, so it's a pretty amazing thing, and he's very fan-friendly. His shows, they change a lot each night, besides this tour, which is always the same for the first two hours, but he's just very active and still at the top of his game, so I think he warrants all of our coverage. All right, all right. All right, we're going to answer a question from Brian, a reader named Brian. Is there some sort of secret that is allowing for Bruce Springsteen at 66 years old to perform at the same level as he did in his 20s and 30s? Andy? I don't know. Can you speak to this? I can. It's a combination of things. He has very strong genes. His mother is still alive (laughs) in her 90s. He he has ants that made it to their very late 90s still working. Uh, Kind of the John McCain type. Yeah. uh, yeah. He has very strong genes. I I think he's had no sugar or fat in his diet in like 25 years. No kidding. Yeah, I think he eats virtually nothing besides the most boring foods of all time. I think he works out like a maniac. I've asked Steve Van Zandt if he takes HGH, and <laughs> Steve denies that and says that he's Wait never— Wait for the special report at yeah. the end of the year. Yeah. Steve said to me, Bruce is the living embodiment of what happens to somebody when they never take drugs in their entire life. Right, I think, right. I think that there was no drug period ever. There was no drinking period. He's been very healthy. Right. I mean, if you, but if you look at him at the river, he's a skinny guy. Then by Born in the USA, he bulked up. I think in his mid-30s, he started to really work out, and right. he's maintained that. Right. So he's almost 70 now and is in amazing shape. And his right. shows are like workout marathons. That's well, how that, that was it. a complicated answer, but it sounds, <laughs> sounded pretty informed. Yes. Uh, so, uh, okay, final question. This is from Barb Era. I'm not sure how this got here. When are the Ramones touring? Well, that's a stellar question, <laughs> Barb. But... What's interesting is the Ramones are one of the first— this was, I'm sorry, I just yeah. need to point out that this was a question on a Bruce, yes. Bruce Springsteen story. No, it's a yeah. fine Springsteen-related question. I'm happy to answer <laughs> it. The Ramones are one of the first bands ever that had lost every original member. The, 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 there's not one real Ramone left. I think right. the first group was the Jimi Hendrix experience. They all lost everybody. Right. But it's really rare because there's always one guy that's still hanging around. Right. But, but right. when Tommy died— they lost everybody. Right. They have Marky still that joined right. later. Who was the second drummer. Yeah, right. they have CJ with the second bassist. Right. They have Richie Ramone was the third drummer. Right. They have Elvis Ramone from Blondie that played a single show before he was fired. Right. So, so they you're got, saying they, you don't have any good news for Barbara. Well, if Barbara wants to see Marky Ramone play a show, he, he plays, does still play he out tours, a bit, right? plays lots of 
of Ramones songs, but right. without Joey, Johnny, and Dee Dee, it's not right. it's not the best thing in the world. And right. CJ Ramone tours, who was the bass player from from eighty nine until ninety six. Right. He plays Ramone songs. Right. But so there's something out there. Yeah. Yeah. You can see a very glorified tribute band, but of all groups that are not going to be reforming anytime soon, I think that the Ramones are on top of that it, list because it's a pretty safe bet. They're literally all dead. Right. They all died. Right. All four of them are dead. Right. Andy Green, thank you for coming. It was my pleasure. Thanks for coming to Rolling Stone Music Now, and please go to the iTunes store to subscribe. Subscribe.